2020 was quite the year and 2021 doesn't seem that much different. A lot of the world is probably isolated and stuck at home trying to fight this incredible pandemic, not get anyone sick. Unfortunately, a lot of people have lost their lives in, in this pandemic as well, which has been so sad. It wasn't that long ago when we were all socializing and having dinner with friends, going out with a group of people, maybe people that you didn't really know, got to learn something about some new faces perhaps. And so it got Kyle and I to start dreaming about those moments again. And when those moments come, who would those top five people, dead or alive, that we would want to have dinner with? So in this episode, that's what we do. We talk about these top five people, and funny enough, we get to know each other a little bit. And we have a bit of fun talking about these incredible human beings. So enjoy this one. We want you to dream about your top five would love to hear back from you. And in that process, you might end up seeing a pattern and discover something new about yourself. Thanks for joining us. Hi everyone, welcome to episode 3 of Two Nobodies, I'm Rupesh. I'm so excited for this episode because we get to talk about some incredible human beings. People that we would want to have the ultimate dinner with. And so I'm going to bring in Kyle because I think this is going to be a great chance for me to get to know him. And hopefully he gets to know a little bit about me. These are probably going to be people that you listening might know about. And so I think it's just going to be a fun episode. Nothing super serious, just two guys getting to know each other about who these Ultimate Dinner Party guests are. So Kyle, welcome back to episode three. Thanks for continuing to join me on this journey. Hey buddy, happy to be here. Yeah, this is a, this is an interesting one. This was um, your idea and it's an interesting conversation to have, an interesting question to be posed, so I'm looking forward to it. Well, what I've, I kind of use this almost as um, just a rapid fire question sometimes with friends who I'm getting to know. And what it's kind of told me is that when I see these five people, there's always some sort of commonality or link between them. And it, and I can kind of see how it connects back to them and they'll reflect on that. And they'll be like, yeah, that's actually true. Or they'll be like, no, it's not really. So I just wanted to have a fun exercise with you and and see what other people think and, sure. and have uh... people reflect on their own uh, five people perhaps. I'll be interested to hear if you can uh, discern any kind of pattern out of this, because <laughs> I, I don't think there's any connection between any of these people. Um, it's a little all over the place for sure. So I'll be uh, I'll be interested to hear if you can come up with any kind of pattern. All right. Well, for well, first, were there any reflections on um, the second episode or anything that came from the first episode that maybe you thought in terms of the content or anything you want to add? Um. Not really. No, I think from one to two, we certainly improved. I noticed less, um, you know, less stuttering, less ums, ahs, hums, and haws, which is good, I think. Um, both episodes were interesting in their own way. I think both had some room to improve. So 
um yeah no i'm i'm looking forward to episode three and hopefully there's some form of progression of improvement from one to two to three um yeah so i'm interested uh, to see how how this one turns out what I about you we'll, i guess we'll see if people continue to listen to us i see sometimes the stats and so far they're pretty good so <laughs> i told I would, you number one podcast in two uh, weeks, so uh, if yeah. we hit it this week <laughs> i guess i'm a liar We're, uh, yeah and we should just quit i think <laughs> yeah what I what I did actually get some feedback on episode one from somebody who listened to it. And and one thing that was really interesting was, I mean, we talked about presence in episode one and they had said that, uh, that if they were to miss some of their kids' moments, sometimes obviously the ones that those kids really care about, they would move mountains to be there. But sometimes missing those moments kind of creates independence for these kids. Yeah. And I was like, okay, that's, I thought that was an interesting point. We didn't, we didn't, we, I, I, at least I had not thought that part through, but I think that's, that's, that's a fair point is that, you know, kids need to also kind of handle things for yourself. And I know, and I feel like you're going to bring this up, uh, but I think we're going to have a conversation at some point about a book, uh, The Coddling of the American Mind. And I suspect that that will be in there. I actually just bought that book this week so i'm oh. excited to read it and we can have that nice. conversation but do you have any yeah, thoughts I mean, I, on that yeah so i i um that book definitely touches on that to to some degree i mean the quote that he starts that book off with is something along the lines of um prepare the child for the road not the road for the child and i think that, that mm. it's an interesting quote and one that um sort of lays out generally how he feels in that book but uh i'll be interested to hear what you think about it and I'm looking forward to that conversation because that book was very, very interesting to me. Um, so for those of you who don't know and maybe want to read along with us, uh, it's a book called The Coddling of the American Mind by a guy named Jonathan Haidt. So just look it up. Uh, we'll be talking about it here in the future. But yeah, I, I struggle sometimes with them. Um, so Lowell can play very independently. And I find sometimes I inject myself into his independent playing. Mm-hmm. And I sometimes I think it's fine because we're just hanging out and playing and bonding. But other times I think I sort of take away from his independence by doing why, that. And I, why, why do you feel like you want to jump in? Cause I just love him and I like to yeah. play with him and it's, and it's uh, fun to hang out. And so if he's playing Legos or he's doing a puzzle, I just kind of want to be in there with him. And I think that that's fine for most of the time. But I also think sometimes that if I do that too much, he might not get as much independent play, mm. you know, times to sort of, express his creativity because now he'll even talk to himself or he'll he'll make up a conversation between two of his toys or something and i'll sort of interject just because i want to but um it sort of interrupts the game that he's playing in his head or the conversation that he's having with his toys and i think that's not it's fine to do that sometimes but i think it's important too you know sort of like the feedback that you received on episode one that it's important for them to sort of do that on their own and so i've been trying to do that less which is which is really hard, especially yeah. if they fail three or four times at something like putting puzzle pieces together, for example, if he fails at it three or four times, I'll usually just automatically jump in and help him out. But I don't know that that's the best thing to do. And so I've had to start looking at his independent play sort of from that angle that maybe I don't need to be involved at all sometimes. Isn't it the cutest thing when they're um, sort of with your son and, and my daughter, she kind of has the same thing. Like she'll, just talk some story through through with her with her toys and just watching their and listening to the where their mind goes is just it's just kind of fun and i 
I probably do the same thing at times too. And I love it because it just allows me to be a kid again, which is, uh, I don't know if that's embarrassing to admit, but it's, it's, it is, it is fun to just kind of join them on that silly adventure. Oh, it's so fun. It's, yeah. that's why I selfishly want to join is because <laughs> he's having a great time and the games that he's playing are usually pretty fun. Like they look fun and the little yeah. conversations he comes up with are hilarious between his yeah. toys. So I always want to be a part of that, but I, you know, have realized maybe I should step back sometimes to let him be his own little person for a while. Yeah. Yeah. So, so I thought that that was, uh, interesting, interesting feedback that we got from the listeners. So I appreciate that. So let's think about this ultimate dinner party, Kyle, right? So we're not talking about, we're not talking about the last supper, you know, that, you know, you're on your deathbed, you want to have somebody, you know, your, <laughs> your, your main five people. Cause those are probably near close and uh, close to you, of course, I would think. But these are like the these are the people who you know maybe you admire from a, a distance, could be dead or alive, that you just want to spend a good few hours with. Could be if you want. I'm not sure how you thought. I'm not sure if this would be for you on an individual basis, which could happen. For for me, I kind of when I think of my five, I almost think of it as like a collective group dinner. So I, I thought about oh. I thought about that way, but it, it doesn't have to be. So so who who for you in no particular order, um, who is somebody who would definitely have to be there? Yeah. Okay. So let's uh, get this going. So first of all, I would probably serve chicken parmesan or like a beef Wellington. I don't know if you've ever uh, you should look up Gordon Ramsay's beef Wellington recipe. It's like a, I've, I've I've watched uh, Hell's Kitchen and I'm sure it's very good because everyone messes that dish up on that show. Oh so. man! And then like he has a video on YouTube where he's like, yeah, it's just this easy and whatever. But it, yeah. it's like a roast wrapped in puff pastry. Anyways, it looks amazing. I've never tried to make it, but I want to. Anyway, so I'd probably serve a little bit of beef wellington or chicken parmesan. Um, so number one on my list, I think, is a guy named Bill Watterson. And I would mm. I, I would wonder if that name means anything to you. I actually don't know who that is. Yeah, okay. So and I that's not surprising. Um and I I sort of after making this list, I sort of figured out that maybe a lot of these names outside of one maybe wouldn't be common knowledge and i hope that i'm not being exclusionist in that way i didn't intentionally try to do that but this is gonna um, be interesting and, though because i like I, I think you're gonna like the people on my list it, everyone is gonna know these people i would think and so yeah. i'm actually really interested to learn more about these people so tell me about bill watterson uh, all right so bill watterson is the creator writer and illustrator of calvin and hobbes Okay. Um, so Calvin and Hobbes, for those of you who don't know, um, was probably the most popular comic strip running in, newspa- in newspapers across North America from 1985 to 1995. Mm. Um, and Bill Watterson retired at the height of the comic strip's popularity when he was 38 years old, after only doing it for 10 years, like I said. And he, he said that he was sort of done with what he could do uh, within the constraints of his daily deadlines and the small panels. And sort of when asked why he was leaving, um, he sort of gave an answer around that he was fed up with the unrelenting demands of of the newspaper syndicate. So he he distributed he, he had a contract with the newspaper syndicate that distributed his comics to uh, papers across North America. Yeah, but they they were sort of in control of how things ran. And so he got really, really tired of, of, of that relationship because they were continually asking him to make creative sacrifices. And they really, really wanted him to allow merchandising of his characters. 
which at the time, so in probably 1990, the um, comic merchandising industry was worth about $12 billion a year. And he had the most popular comic strip um, in in any newspaper across North America. So you think about so, how much of that say, money... I was just going to say, when you say comic merchandising, do you mean, like, what does that mean look like? So that means uh, Bill Watterson would say, yep, I want you to go and make coffee mugs, t-shirts, okay, okay. Uh, uh, notepads, stuffed yeah. animals, toys, sort of like you see with Garfield, or maybe you'd see with, like, Family Guy, or even Simpsons. Uh, yeah. Uh, you know, you can always buy, like, a Homer t-shirt or you know, a stuffed animal or whatever it is. But in order to do that, the owner of that material has to sign the rights over. Um, And of course they get money for doing that. Mm -hmm. But Watterson didn't want to do that. And he didn't allow any form of any merchandising. So whenever you're driving down the road and you see a decal of, of Calvin pissing on the Ford logo, that's illegal. Or anybody who has any kind of t-shirt with like Calvin Hobbs on it, that's a, um, that's an illegal replication of of those characters anyways he was even a- approached by, by major film companies uh even recently pixar wanted to do a movie uh with calvin and Hobbes, and he turned them all down so you think about the amount of money this guy left on the table i mean it's mm-hmm. millions and millions and millions probably it maybe could be billions um and when asked why he said and i'll quote here to explore character uh you need lots of time and space notepads and coffee mugs just aren't uh, um aren't appropriate vehicles for, for what i'm trying to do here I'm not interested in removing all the subtlety from my work to condense it for a product. I have no aversion to obscene wealth, but that's not my motivation either. I think to license Calvin and Hobbes would ruin the most precious qualities of my strip. And once that happens, you can't buy those qualities back. And he added, I'm convinced that licensing would sell out the soul of Calvin and Hobbes. The world of a comic strip is much more fragile than most people realize. Once you've given up its integrity, that's it. I want to make sure that that never happens. Instead of asking what's wrong with rampant commercialism, we ought to be asking what justifies it. And so that in and of itself is very interesting and very intriguing to me. There's this guy who's so dedicated to um, his creative side and his comic strip and his characters that he's giving up a significant amount of money just to maintain the integrity. Um, But then he's also a bit of a recluse. If you Google his name, there's one picture that will come up across the entire internet. There aren't two pictures of Bill Watterson on the internet. That's Um, crazy. It's insane. And he also, he has refused interviews from fans, from documentarians, from anybody. He only ever comes out of the woodworks to draw something for a charity um, or to add to some project that he feels is worth it, which has probably only been four or five since 1995. Yeah. So it's pretty rare. And he's alive. Yeah, yeah, sorry, yeah. So he's okay. still alive. He lives okay. in Ohio somewhere, but uh, nobody knows where. There have actually been movies made with, with, with people trying to track him down, and they can't find him. Um, anyway, so that was all very interesting to me. The sort of um, how dedicated he was to his product and his yeah. characters. But then I stumbled upon. So he also hasn't written much either outside of the comic strip. But in 1990, he delivered a speech to the graduating class of his alma mater, uh, which is Kenyon College, which is a small college in Ohio, which is mm-hmm. where he went. And there's a couple snippets out of this speech that I'm just going to read you quickly um, because it's like, this guy's almost like a modern day philosopher. I mean, it's it's insane, some of this stuff. It, it He just seems very, very wise. So uh, first quote, 
Sooner or later, we are all asked uh, to compromise ourselves and the things we care about. We define ourselves by our actions. With each decision, we tell ourselves and the world who we are. Think about what you want out of this life and recognize that there are many kinds of success. Creating a life that reflects your values and satisfies your soul is a rare achievement. In a culture that relentlessly promotes avarice and excess as the good life, a person happy doing his work is usually considered an eccentric, if not a subversive. Ambition is only understood if it's to rise to the top of some imaginary ladder of success. Someone who takes an undemanding job uh, because it affords him the time to pursue other interests and activities is considered a flake. A person who abandons a career in order to stay home and raise children is considered not to be living up to his potential, as if a job title and salary are the sole measure of human worth. Mm. Uh, and this last one, you'll be told in a hundred ways, some subtle and some not, to keep climbing and never be satisfied with where you are, who you are, and what you're doing. There are a million ways to sell yourself out, and I guarantee you'll hear much about them. Such is American business, I guess, where the desire for obscene profit mutes any discussion of conscious. So I found those, I've actually read that uh, speech probably 12 times throughout my life when I sort of needed a bit of a boost. And it, it really, really has, has hit home for me. And it was sort of the first exposure for me of somebody saying, I understand exactly what is expected of me um, from society, if you want to put kind of that broad brush across yeah. it. I understand what the cultural expectations are for somebody and I reject them wholly. And not only that, um, I believe in the integrity of my work so much that I'm willing to leave so much money on the table. And and it, in a time when everybody's looking for attention, 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 yes. he just wants to kind of uh, be left out of all of it. And I that really, really was eye-opening for me. Um, and so I would love to sit down and have a conversation with this guy over Beef Wellington. Yeah. And actually when I was... Uh, um, when I was researching this, I got so into Bill Watterson that I bought a couple Calvin and Hobbes books. I have a couple lying around, <laughs> but I was like so moved by this man. I was like, I gotta, I gotta read Calvin and Hobbes. So I bought a couple extra books like two days ago, just because you I didn't buy his coffee mug. Though. No, I didn't buy his coffee mug. And I would never do that to Bill. Yeah, you know, if you're listening, yeah. <laughs> I will never do that to you. Uh, and if you want to come on the show, you know, Bill, come on. Um, what a person of integrity, man. Like that's, that's yeah. To throw away that money and to be so dedicated to that craft. And I, I'm actually really curious. You said, you know, you, you've read that speech, like you said, 12 times during yeah. kind of difficult moments. Can you speak to any of those difficult moments and sort of I where mean, you felt like it was really providing you that lift? Yeah, sure. Yeah. I mean, a couple that uh, come to mind. So I, um, when I came out of high school, I played sports for a couple of years after high school. And I had this identity of, I'm a athlete. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm someone who, who plays sports. Mm-hmm. And then I realized very quickly that I wasn't that good at the sport that I played actually. Mm-hmm. Um, and the two years I spent playing it after high school were very, very humbling for me. And then my career ended and, um, I sort of was just left drift because I had aligned my identity with, well, I'm an athlete. Yeah. Um, and I didn't really have anything else to go on. I didn't, you know, I didn't really have any other strong interests. I just kind of always thought of myself as that. And so why would I pursue other things? And so I really started to be like, well, what do I want to do now that this is over? I should probably go to school, I guess. Or I should probably get a job. Like, I, like, I don't know. 
And so I had a real period of self-reflection and that's sort of when I stumbled on this and there are some snippets in there that, that like really, really spoke to me. So that was sort of the first one. Second one was, uh, so after I kind of get through that, I decided that I want to go into kinesiology. I register in this program. I go to this school for two years and I realize I don't really enjoy kinesiology. And I ha- I was in um, this program called, I think, sports marketing and management or something like that. Okay. Um, and I realized a year into it that I wasn't really into it. And I went through the second year just to get the diploma because it was a two-year diploma that you could lead into a degree. But that was another moment in my life where I was like, well, this isn't what I thought it was going to be. And like, now what do I do? Should I go? There were times in my life where I thought, well, maybe I should go work in the oil field for a little bit, or maybe I should go, you know, I, I don't know what to do here. Most people will think that making money is the thing to do. And to make the most money, I can go to these you know different avenues. And where we live, Rupesh, you know, the oil field is a pretty standard place to go for oil country, yes. early 20s um, who doesn't really know what they're going to do. And so this kind of sort of ran through my head again at that time. You're like, well, I mean, is money really what you want to be chasing right now? You know, you're young and you're interested and you're curious. And so is that really where you want to go? Um, so that just led me to some further self-reflection and there have been, you know, other periods in my life where maybe I'm not so sure about what I'm doing is the right thing or when I need motivation to pursue something creative that will have no monetary benefit at all to me or whatever. Right. Um, I, I kind of think of, of this speech and think about Bill Watterson and all this stuff. This guy sounds so grounded and so rooted in himself. Like I find those kind of people just incredibly impressive individuals and and you're right i don't think in society that we have or at least doesn't feel like we have those kind of people they're rare rare, right yeah so that's that's an awesome that would be an awesome person to have dinner with for sure i would i would i i feel like he you know would creep into my list maybe too like that like yeah that's very very interesting guy plus the comic is hilarious i've been reading it the last couple days it's just funny. It's it's funny. You'll have to send me the link. I don't. I don't think I, I've never really gotten into comics, but I would yeah. definitely take a look at his for sure. Enough about me. What about you? What? Uh, um, who's at the top of your list here? Or so you said that you would have like a dinner party. So run down the menu. So run down the menu. What are you serving to all these people? Well, I don't know because I can't serve beef Wellington because the first person is a vegetarian and uh, yeah. he's of Hindu descent, and so. You know, anyone who understands the Hindu faith, Indian culture, beef is usually not something that's served. Sure. So this person, everyone knows who he is. It's Mahatma Gandhi. It's somebody who I, who I, when I learned about the things that he did, I just was always intrigued by him and just couldn't understand how somebody could dedicate their life to something in such a way. So I will talk about him. But if you want to know, do you want to know the full list right now? Then? Uh, no, let's go one and one back and forth. Okay, let's do one on one. So, so yeah, Mahatma Gandhi. I mean, if people don't know, well, I'm not going to necessarily say who Gandhi was. I think most people probably would or should maybe know who Mahatma Gandhi is. But Mahatma just means the great soul. So his name was actually Mahandas. So Mahatma means the great soul. I actually went to India a number of times, and in 1995, I got to go to his memorial site where he was cremated, and also the site where he was assassinated. Whoa. And just he just 
you just feel that, you know, and, and I've read, I've read articles uh, in the last week of how those sites are still incredibly revered and there's always a solemnness around that. The thing is that he, you know, as revered as he was, the thing I also appreciate about him, not necessarily the things obviously that he did in terms of the negative aspects, but he just wasn't, he wasn't a perfect man. You know, he, people look at him as in, in some, I'm sure, I have no doubt in India as somewhat saint-like and even I'm sure people around the world, but he wasn't a perfect man. You know, I think it's very well known that there were episodes in his life of where he abused his wife, Gustava, and that was, you know, that's not something that you and I as men would tolerate or, or many men these days would tolerate, you know, yeah. but back in the day, that was a thing, Right. He, you know, he's had some other, some other incidences as well, which you could easily research and, and find out that, that, you know, make you cringe and, and would, would you, you know, probably somebody that you would follow today if you knew these things about him, perhaps, sure. right? Sure. What was so interesting about him, though, is he just had this kind of stubborn conviction to so many, like, principles, right? Like, one was, like, celibacy, for instance, like, was so... Uh, was so committed to something like that. But then obviously his, his movements, right? The nonviolence movement, especially at a time, if you think about all that was happening in, you know, the 20s and 1920s, 30s and 40s, right? You had this nonviolent movement in one part of the world in India. And then in Europe, you had the rise of Nazi Germany and incredible commitment to violence. And so these things are happening in parallel. So I just find, I, I just when I learned about what he actually did and some of the events, the nonviolent famous events like the Salt March and and there are some other ones where just his thinking that that someone could someone could actually or collectively you know remove a superpower from their country by just being disobedient, expressing civil disobedience. Or just, you know, if they, if, if the British force, if the British army is coming at you, just resist, just, just don't be aggressive and that will get you to some higher level objective, like how he was able to speak to that and convince people and that level of influence. And then you had somebody else in the world with, with Adolf Hitler, who is doing it in such a evil way and convincing people, right? And these two forces were acting at the same time. I've always actually always thought about like, imagine if those two people had dinner together or were in the same room and they communicated with each other. I don't think, I don't think, I think, I don't think Hitler would be any what receptive, but just imagine, right? These two powerful figures, probably in the top, arguably the top five in, in the 20th century or in maybe, you know, a, a good deal of modern history. And them expressing themselves in completely different ways. And yeah. the interesting thing, I don't know if you know this, Kyle, but Gandhi actually wrote letters to Hitler. I didn't know that. So he wrote two letters and he he called he called Hitler his friend. Like he addressed him as friend, like dear friend, because he said that he always viewed everybody as sort of equal. Like there was sort of this non-judgmental kind of approach he had to everybody, which actually made some people in India kind of mad about that. 
but he addressed him as friend and he really tried to appeal to him that a war really does nothing and that nonviolence is really a better way. And if you're to go about war and destroying other countries, you could potentially destroy yours. And there's no legacy to be proud of that. And that's very much apparent. I mean, you look at Germany, they have you know, gotten rid of every or tried to get rid of every part of that history. And no one wants to, there's such a shame when anyone, when anyone talks to, talks to is my understanding, but in India, you have somebody who's revered and they call him the father of the nation. Right. So it it really shows sort of what that, what that broader approach was. But I found that fascinating when I learned about that a few years ago, that he had actually tried to appeal to them. And he even said, like, he's like, I don't know if this is going to work. My friends told me to do this kind of thing. But he felt like he had a duty to 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 speak to it because of the atrocities that he was learning about. And the first one, he actually didn't know about the Holocaust was actually happening at that time. And the second one, I think he, he like the invasion in Poland had already happened. And so he knew that of the atrocities that were starting to happen, and he felt like very, very compelled. So I think the second letter is much longer than the first one. Interesting. Yeah. So eye for an eye makes the whole world blind. Isn't that Gandhi? Yeah. Yeah. And I heard that so Gandhi was assassinated, right? He was gunned down on the street. Not not quite a, not quite on the street. He was he was uh, I think he was sort of at this. I mean, it was it was I think there was a ceremony, but it was I, I think it was public. But sorry, go on. Yeah, no, no. Uh, and the guy that gunned him down, I heard, did so in part because of Gandhi's um, nonviolence movement, and he saw that it it was he felt that it was a little emasculating towards to his country or something and he he didn't agree with gandhi on a couple other fronts but he shot him uh and he, and he, he said that he shot him because he felt like he had to even though he loved gandhi wasn't that yeah so so uh, what's his i forget his name i should i think it's god says his last name yeah yeah but he was a hindu nationalist and so gandhi was asked he wanted a secular society now india india even today but I suspect maybe even more so before was a super majority of Hindus. I think it was like 80%, okay. uh, maybe today and maybe even more before. But Gandhi wanted equality and, and people to view Muslims and Christians and essentially want the country to operate from a place that's secular. And so a lot of Hindu nationalists did not like that. There's a huge, probably the longest religious sort of rent tension and rivalry is between Hindus and Muslims. And so that was not viewed very, very well. And so Godse, who's a Hindu nationalist, um, assassinated him. But it was something that Gandhi, so he paid for it. He paid his life for believing in these kind of things and believing in, in sort of equality and believing in sort of this non-judgment. And he, like, I read one of the episodes for when he um, dragged his wife Gustuba from their house. And it was because he really, he really viewed there in India, there's kind of this caste system, right? Like you have these people who are called like the untouchables, who they say are sort of the lowest rung caste. And so he wanted to make sure that the untouchables were at an equal level to everybody else. And so a lot of these untouchables that they would call them, he they would, you know, clean houses. They would do the things that people nobody wanted to do. And so he had these people who would be cleaning for their house and and he didn't want them to be treated any differently and i guess that didn't go over well with gustubashi didn't understand that or something was there but anyways 
it was because of that conviction to that principle of like, you know, we should not express judgment any differently to different people that sort of led him in some cases to, to, to hurting her. And, you know, he paid for his life at the end, I guess, for that way. I hope I'm not messing up too much of the history, but that's, that's sort of my understanding uh, about, about Gandhi in that way. Sure. Sure. Yeah. No, no, uh, that makes sense. And I didn't, I didn't really know about his slights. I mean, it sounds like, um, you know, he was doing some things, like you said earlier, that um, were, were pretty bad uh, to his wife. And I, I didn't know that. I had no idea. Um, it's it, it's just an interesting point. So I appreciate the convo for sure. Well, I, have you seen the movie Gandhi? With I, saw a long, I saw it a long time ago when I was too young to probably understand it. Yeah, and and so I don't know if it was a director or who, but Richard Attenborough, I guess, was a oh, yeah. like the guy from uh, the Planet Earth. Is that the, that's David? Oh, Attenborough, David Attenborough. Right? All right, yeah, sorry, I, sorry, sorry. Yeah, I know. I when I when I read that uh, this week because this is something I knew I learned. I was like, I don't think it's the same guy. No, it's it's Richard Attenborough, and I guess he interviewed Jawaharlal Nehru, who was the first Prime Minister of India. And he said, tell me about Gandhi. And he said, please, in your movie, just don't paint him to be a saint because he was really human. Uh, interesting. And, and Joel Nero was, you know, uh, definitely a follower and was uh, a critical person in India's independence. And so for him to say that, I think that carries a lot of weight. Yeah. And Joel Nero is certainly, certainly revered to my understanding in India as well. So Interesting. Cool. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. No, that's... Uh... Very interesting and, and honest representation of Gandhi. I've I've never really um, heard that perspective of him, but uh, definitely interesting guy to at least sit down and have a conversation with. Yeah, so I mean, I, I I mean, I guess it'd be when people are like, "Yeah, Gandhi, oh yeah, that makes sense." But I think of what I really want to speak to is that he just was human, and I think that's such an appealing part of that. And he started from my, from reading parts of his autobiography, he he admits to that, and so to me, that's just he understands himself and somebody I definitely would, would want to talk to, but it would be, yeah, it'd be hard not to kind of view him, you know, at that sort of saint level, if he's in front of you, like yeah. what a, what an awesome individual. So, okay. Back over to you. Who's your, who's your second person? Next guy would be uh, a guy known as, uh, well, not known as this is his name. His name is Pete Best. Um, and Pete Best is known as the fifth Beatle. So this is a guy, he was the original drummer for the Beatles. So he, his mother owned a club in Liverpool called, uh, the Casbah, I think. And the Beatles needed a drummer. They were called like the Quarrymen, I think back then. This is about 1960 and they didn't really have a good drummer. And so they, um, saw Pete Best playing in some other band and they invited him to come play in their band, you know, just for a few small tours. So he says, yeah, sure. And he ends up playing with Beatles for two years. He recorded a couple songs with them. Um, but this is the years where the Beatles were, weren't really known. So 1960 to 1962. Beatles signed their first record deal in May of 1962 with, with EMI Records. And that's when they started recording at, at Abbey Road. And, and then the Beatles fired uh, Pete Best in the fall of 1962. And a few months later, the Beatles' first hit, Love Me Do, comes out with Ringo as the drummer, and then Beatlemania just explodes. Uh, 1964, oh, Beatles come over to the States, and like they, you know, so the whole British invasion yeah. happens. Yeah. And Best was fired by the Beatles. And so John Lennon, Paul McCartney, and George Harrison were, were cowards about it. They couldn't do it to his face. They got their manager, uh, a guy named Epstein, 
to do it. And so here's this guy. He ended up trying to play music afterwards a little bit. Um, you know, not a lot of success. He ended up working as a civil servant for the majority of his working career. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But so here's the thing, though. He doesn't look back at it with anger. And so he, he definitely had some rough patches. He did try to take his life at the height of Beatlemania. Yeah. And he there was still some friction between Best and the Beatles. He did sue them for libel because they had made some claims as to why they, they kicked him out of the band, uh, which he said were false. And they settled out of court for a bit of money. It's not really known why they kicked him out. They think it was mostly just just a bit of a personal fit with the band. When you talk to Pete Best now, and I've never talked to him, so I don't know this, but like reading interviews with him now, he looks back at it and he says, there's nothing to forgive. I'm almost grateful for um, how things played out. Because so he met his wife when he was touring with the Beatles, so 1960, 61. Mm-hmm. They're still married. They have a couple of kids. Mm-hmm. And he's very close to his family. And he said that that wouldn't be the case if he had been a Beatle. Mm. He wouldn't be as close to his family and his loved ones if he had been a Beatle. He's still alive. He's in his 70s now. And so he went through a, some stages of anger, some stages of regret. He did try to kill himself. But he sort of one day just kind of figured it out. That you know what? Being in the greatest band of all time would hit the top of a lot of people's success meter but success is different based on who whose view of success it is like what are your metrics for success and for him he's realized late in life that success is being close to his family and he's made a fair amount of money he still has um he still makes a bit of money from the couple songs that he recorded with the Beatles. Mm. He now is is retired from his life as a civil servant, and he tours with the Pete Best Band. So he's I was going to say, does he still jam? But so clearly he does. Yeah. 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 So like he 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 tours, uh, or he has toured with the Pete Best Band, um, and so he's he still got to play music throughout his life. Um, he's close to his family. He's comfortable financially. And if you look at how sort of things played out for the other Beatles, while they're doing well, you know, so John Lennon was gunned down in the streets. Um, Paul McCartney has been through a handful. And I'm not saying that this, that it'd be rough to be Paul McCartney because I'm sure it wouldn't. But Paul McCartney has been through at least one um, pretty rough divorce. And, mm-hmm. you know, the the life of a rock star is probably all, probably always looks good to people that aren't rock stars. But sure. I imagine if you are a rock star, it, it can get pretty old pretty quick. So what I really, really appreciated was Pete Best's ability to sort of look beyond the traditional views of success and sort of be mindful as to what your own metrics for success are. Mm. You know, here's a guy that if he'd have been grumpy the rest of his life, nobody would have blamed him for it. And actually, quick story. So there's another example of somebody who who got kicked out of a band right before they blew up. There's a guy named Dave Mustaine. And this, sorry, uh, this isn't one of my five, but but just an interesting story of yeah. contrast. So uh, so. The, so Mustaine gets kicked out of Metallica right before I, I I think that they had released their first album. Yeah. And he was just partying too much. He, he was a little too rough around the edges for Metallica. So that sort of paints a picture of of kind of <laughs> uh, kind of guy that he was. So they kick him out of the band. And he just is so mad. He's so mad. So he goes on to start his own band uh, called Megadeth, who's probably like the third biggest metal band of all yeah, time. So I've like, heard of Megadeth, so like, yeah. So I think like Metallica has sold hundreds of millions of, of records and like Megadeth has sold um, dozens of mm-hmm. millions of records, but Mustaine is still bitter. He's still angry. He's still, 
has animosity towards those guys and he's still mad about the past. He's never let it go, mm-hmm. even though he's he's as um you know, he's not as famous as Metallica, but he's not far off. And he's way more famous than Pete Best is. Mm-hmm. He's way more money than Pete Best does, but he's still angry about it and still eats mm-hmm. him up inside. And I sort of stole that comparison from a book called um The Subtle Art of Not Giving a Fuck, where this guy talks mm-hmm. about metrics and and values and all that stuff. So this isn't an original uh, comparison, but it's a really interesting one. So I really appreciated Best's ability to sort of um, understand what's important, even if it took him a couple of years to get there um, and say, you know what, I've got it pretty good when he had every reason in the world to probably just be a grumpy old um, sort of um, regretful guy for the rest of his life. Well, and what's that's, yeah, those are, that's, those are two really good comparisons that you, you did at the end with, um, with the guy from metal death and, and Pete best. And what stood out for me when you were talking about Pete best is, is sort of what you were saying there is it's like, he didn't, he didn't wish like the past was any different. Like that's, I've heard like that's sort of a, a really good definition for forgiveness, right? Is it, yeah. He, he really valued the things that like his metrics of success, like you said, were different and his values were different and he wouldn't want it any different. And yeah, that's, that's a hard thing. Those are, you've got two quality people, man, to have dinner with. That's. Yeah. I mean, I don't know if they'd be cool to have supper with, like, (laughs) like, but it would be an interesting, at least to be able to, to talk to them and sort of talk about their experiences. And, you know, Pete Best went through some rough times and kind of came up better for it. It, it sounds like, right. Um, anyways, at least you could, at least you could jam with Pete Best. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I would that is pretty sweet. Pete, best. Yeah. Pete, if you're listening to the show, which he probably is, if you want to jam, let me know. Yeah. Um, okay, it. so two down for me. What's your second? Second is Marie Curie. Don't, uh, you know, I do not know who that is. No, okay. So Marie no. Curie, she discovered radium and polonium. She okay. won two Nobel Prizes in physics. Okay. So I, I have... I guess I have a science background, but someone would say kinesiology is more applied sciences, but I studied the sciences. So let's just say I have a science background, okay, for anyone who's really critical of that. But I did learn about Marie Curie uh, back when I, you know, back in in those science classes. So these radioactive elements, radium, polonium, you know, she found and became so important as sources of radiation and, you know, radiation is now used in the medical field to treat cancer. Just massive stuff i mean that in itself is is worth having her in any conversation but i think the challenges that she went through she's talking about like in the late 1800s early 1900s what she had to go through as a female scientist in physics first of all physics is very dominated by men and so she had to she had to she had to go through that get belittled by her male colleagues and peers just understanding the challenges that she would have went through would have been fascinating. I would have thought like just inspirational, I think at the same time, she lost her husband, Pierre, I think it was maybe 1903, but something early. And she, from my understanding, bounced back and she continued her dedication to her work. And, and that's what led her to sort of her second Nobel prize just overall an outstanding individual scientist contributor to to our our world and to physics 
obviously. And so I would absolutely love to have her she... as part of my dinner group for sure. Yeah. Yeah. No doubt. Did she, um, how did she die? She died from leukemia and my yeah, so is from radiation. Say, so it's almost yeah, like okay. same thing, I guess, to some extent, same thing with Gandhi. It was this, it was this commitment that led to their death in some way. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, I so. mean, she would have had no idea, I suppose, but, um, yeah, I mean, it's the, so that's what I was sort of wondering. Um, my wife was, was just reading a book called radium girls, I think, and it's women and I, I and I'm going to mess this up, but women that I think, um, painted watches or something like that and they would uh and they painted them with with like a radium paint okay and they would put the brushes in their mouths to like wet them and all these women died of of these cancers yeah um so i anyways uh we had just been talking about that so when you wrote the fact that that, that she discovered radium I, I just figured out that, that there's probably no way that she could have worked that closely with something that um carcinogenic and kind of come out on the other end okay yeah, unless she's just out of this world, like not human at all. But yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah it's it, that's it is interesting that that's the way she died. So that's number two. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay, good one. Who's your Who's your number three? Uh, number three for me is a guy named Bo Miles. Um, so he's a self-proclaimed filmmaker. He calls himself a polyjobist, a speaker, a writer. Um, he has a PhD in outdoor education and he taught outdoor ed at some university in Australia for a while, but he's since kind of quit to focus on filmmaking and writing. Interesting guy, accomplished outdoorsman. He's kayaked around the Southern Horn of Africa solo. And he's also uh, kayaked across the Bass Strait, which um, is the strait that separates mainland Australia from Tasmania. Uh, he first came to my attention when a movie called Human Bean, B-E-A-N, popped up on my YouTube feed. And it's basically about Bo eating his body weight in canned beans and then running a marathon, <laughs> which like doesn't sound great. Like you aren't going to go look that up right now and no. watch it based on that description. But the fact is the movie is great. And it, it's like 20 minutes or something like that. Um, but it speaks more to his, his storytelling. I think most of his films on YouTube are sort of that way. They don't sound that interesting if someone were to describe them to you. And I'll describe a couple right now. So one's called Junk Paddle. And basically he just builds a paddle out of wood that he collects on his commute to work. So he like takes the train and walks to work and any kind of scrap of wood he finds, he picks up and and he ultimately builds a paddle for a canoe trip. One's called a, a mile an hour. And it's one where he, he lives on a block that's exactly a mile long. And so in a 24 hour period, he runs one lap an hour around his block, takes him, I don't know, about eight minutes. And then for the rest of that hour, he kind of tackles some other task around his house so like fixing an old stool or making his wife dinner or planting trees and like the whole meaning of it is basically just like look at the potential that a day has like mm -hmm. so he so at the end of that day he has run a marathon plus done a bunch of other stuff right and then he has another movie called junk wine which is basically where he just drinks a bottle of wine that he found on the side of the road <laughs> that one there's not a lot of lessons to take from it but it's funny Anyways, so the reason that it's that he he's interesting to me is because he always weaves some kind of poignant messaging into his films, even if it's unintentional when he starts filming. And so, so like Junk Paddle is is really about stuff that we throw away, consumerism, and and taking joy in creating. Mm -hmm. um, and a mile an hour is is more about the possibility that a single day holds. And Junk Wine is basically just about drinking booze in a field, but is it was interesting nonetheless. But all his films are pretty funny. They're quite poignant in, in one way or another. And I find that when I'm done watching them, 
I get super motivated huh. to go do something. He's he's really good at at sort of showing that you don't need to know exactly what you're doing to go do things. Just fucking do them. And um, there's a thousand reasons not to do something, but just shut up and do it. Right. And it's it's and so now he has a daughter. So he's he's about my age, a couple years older than me. And he's always going on these adventures or doing something insane like uh, sleeping in a tree for two nights or something like that. And now he's bringing this like one-year-old daughter with him on these adventures. And he's the way that he incorporates his daughter into his life and the way that he just kind of tackles these jobs. He recently just built this little building next to his house for his wife. And he used all old wood that he had just collected over the years. And so really, really interesting point of view or or perspective to look at things to you know everybody wants to build things that are perfect that uh, look great that are all brand new and that's all sort of bullshit when you can build really nice things with old lumber that's totally fine and kind of learn along the way and i just really really appreciate his ability to kind of tell stories and, and to get these other messages across and he's also hilarious like he's he's pretty funny um very, very humble as well. And so there's a lot of traits that this guy has that I admire and he's entertaining. So I think it'd be fun to sit down and have a beer with him. So, okay. So you have Watterson, you have Best, and you have Red is his last name? Uh, Bo Miles. Bo Miles. Sorry. I don't know where I got Red. Yeah, I don't sorry. Know <laughs> Bo <laughs> Miles. Uh, yeah, that's, that one, I'm trying to now, sorry, I'm starting, as you're talking now, I'm trying to see if I can weave the three people and see if there's a pattern. I think something's emerging. So we'll see what four and five, four and five bring about okay, this. Yeah. yeah. Junk wine off the side of the road. I, I have to, I do have to see that. <laughs> and the well, fact he's that like, he's able to find like these kind of simple lessons and, and meaning in these simple things. I, I think, I mean, I think that's always cool. And that's a really great thing to share because I think people are always waiting for, they think that, you know, the greatest values and something super complex or super challenging, but it's sometimes in the most simplest you know, actions or occurrences in our life that can bring incredible meaning and value. So it sounds yeah, like, and like, it sounds like Bo Miles kind of exemplifies that. Yeah. And like there's meaning and there's beauty and there's entertainment at our fingertips, like outside your back door. Like you don't really have to go looking for this stuff too far from your house. And he, and he wears like old dress shirts from Value Village to run marathons in. And he, um, I just think it's interesting how he sort of, uh, you know, he'll enter a marathon and, and there'll be a guy next to him decked out in hundreds of dollars of top end gear. Yeah. And like he'll show up like with a good pair of running shoes, an old like work sh- like like an old uh, dress shirt um with the sleeves ripped off, and he'll just um and a can of beans like, blow this guy's doors off, right? Like he's is it's just I don't know. I just really ex- sort of admire that he he doesn't take himself too seriously, and he is a high performance athlete at the same time. Very cool. Um, so that's my number three. So what's your number three? My number three, it was it, it was a toss up. It was, it was an athlete. So I had, if I could name four. So originally, when I had this, it was always a toss up between MJ and Gretzky, and it was just like because these are these pinnacle, the greatest of greatest athletes, and that just always kind of was fascinating to me. Yeah. So did you ever watch that cartoon growing up? Yeah, uh, with Bo Jackson called, like, as well. Stars. Pro Stars. Yeah. Oh man, love that yeah. cartoon. I didn't know so much good. about Bo Jackson, but definitely knew about the other two. So. Oh man, I should have put Bo Jackson on my list. That guy was insane. Anyway, sorry. Go on. So, so did you pick Gretzky or Jordan or both? I didn't pick either of those actually. Oh. So, so more recently, it's kind of shifted to these these two athletes are more cerebral. So one I mentioned last week, or maybe the first week, George St. Pierre. Yeah. And I I I just think he has he's a, just incredibly well rounded 
from certainly from an athletic standpoint, from what he does, being a champion, reaching that high milestone of greatness, expressing humility, showing vulnerability, just very cerebral in his approach. And, and I just think a converse, like his level of detail of the way he analyzes and questions things is, is, very, is very interesting to me. And then this, and then and then Kobe is actually the the Kobe Bryant is the other person, and yeah. I really followed him over the last three or four years, and watched a lot of his interviews and videos and his approach to his craft. I think it was you know you talk about you talk about some of your, um, but Watterson and his dedication to his craft. Like I think I think you know any of these great athletes would would be probably the same. But Kobe was very visible about that, and he and he and he spoke to that. I mean, it's, I guess it's fitting. It's almost a year since he he died, and I remember when he did yeah. when when he did pass. I was actually I was really bummed out. My wife came to me. She's like, "Are you okay?" I'm like, "It feels like I kind of lost a little bit of a coach. Like I had just read his book, The Mamba Mentality, and had been following just again a lot of his approach to life, and and was really looking forward to seeing sort of his next chapter." And then, and then that tragic accident happened. So I guess for me, it went from like this super mega great athlete in MJ and Gretzky Mm. to just another, these other great athletes, but just these guys who are just have this cerebral approach to them that I think would be very interesting to have at a dinner conversation. Like, I guess I, I think I would never obviously turn down a dinner invitation or have turned down a dinner with MJ or Gretzky, like who would? (laughs) But I think I think just I, I feel like the the level of conversation or the complexity of the conversation I feel like GSP and Kobe maybe would be more befitting of that. So. Yeah, and they're also the two very different athletes. Like Kobe was very in your face, very aggressive to his yes. teammates, very 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 driven, and he wasn't scared to be an asshole to sort of get his teammates on the same page or to push them as well or to try to get them to do better. Um, whereas I don't get that feeling at all from, from George St. Pierre. Well, the the other thing about, the other thing about George, um, was that he was bullied. I don't know if you yeah. knew that, but he was bullied. Yeah, yeah, no, he did. And, and to some extent that kind of connected to me, like I was bullied as a kid. And so to see this guy who was bullied and was so dedicated and now was beating up these people and was a champion, like, man, that's inspirational. And, and that just, you, you know, I wanted to work out extra harder whenever I, after his fights or when I kind of watched him train, just because it's like, he just modeled this, this person that, you know, I, I felt like I could kind of connect to because of him being bullied, you know, it's, it's not an easy thing to go through and for him to be a champion. There was actually, he was on uh, Joe Rogan and he talked about how, how he was actually walking the streets of Montreal and he saw one of his bullies actually panhandling. Really? And he walked up to him and he's like, he's like, what are you doing this for? He's like, you're better than this. Stop doing this. Right. Like he didn't shame him in the sense of like, like just threw him, a, threw him a few bucks or whatever. He could have easily taken the low road. Right. But he just yeah. really challenged him to be like, you're better than this. I'm just like, this oh, guy's really? a quality I, I individual. Hadn't that story. Yeah. Know? I hadn't heard that story. Yeah. So, yeah, so I would say, I would say, I would say probably first GSP and then, and then, and then Kobe. So. Man, when I uh, I've never been a huge well, so uh, I watched most of GSP's fights up until a certain point. And I remember being crestfallen when uh, he lost to uh, Matt Serra, mm-hmm. 
in a fight that he was heavily favored in and, and Sarah kind of caught him with a punch and, and mm-hmm. that was it. And, and I remember just being so deflated and like, you know, cause you're, it's so easy to be a fan of GSP and to kind of be in his corner. And that loss also rocked him. Like that was, from what I remember, like that took a pretty big toll. I'm not, I mean, you know, um, probably physically, but mentally, I mean, that was one of the things he said that sort of, I, I think made him kind of reexamine things. And, um, well, I, I think he said he took it for after that. He took yeah. it for granted, right? He said that like he felt like he was the best, and who's this guy who is going to actually beat him? And and he got hit by a punch, and he and he changed his attitude completely. I I agree with you too, but like that sort of anxiety of watching his fights, and and obviously if you're a fan of anybody and you you don't want them to lose, but because he was like these opponents were trash talking him, almost were kind of bullying him. It's like you really didn't want him to lose, and so whenever there was those moments where he looked kind of iffy or vulnerable or you just you know my heart would be beating a ton yeah. so yeah yeah, yeah. No. so yeah he'd be he'd be probably be number four for me okay or sorry that's number three three yeah that's yeah. three uh yeah. so four for me uh rick moranis you know rick moranis yeah yeah i do know so, rick he's, moranis. so he's canadian actor from ontario um you know sctv was a comedy show where he got his start um, he starred in Ghostbusters, starred in Honey, I Shrunk the Kids series, starred in Little Giants, which is probably the one. So I think Little Giants, uh, I guess Honey, I Shrunk the Kids too. Those are two movies that I watched a lot when I was growing mm-hmm. up. So I was really like Rick Moranis. Very well-known guy. You could probably call him an A-list actor at at the pinnacle of his career. And I think throughout his career, he's earned around something like 10 million bucks. Near the peak of his fame, his wife, Anne, died from breast cancer. She was just 35 years old at the time, and they'd been married for five years, and they had two kids together, Rachel and Mitchell. And I, I, I think she passed away in 1991. And after his wife's death, Moranis tried to act for a little bit, but realized it was just too much. So he walked away. He, he, he quit acting. So f- at first, he said that he took a break, and then he formally just walked away from it because he said that he didn't miss it. But he did it because he couldn't act and balance his parenting duties at the same time. Often he would be traveling to film a movie. And that's pretty hard when you have two little kids at home. Mm-hmm. And so he made the choice to sort of leave his acting career behind to focus on his children at a time when he was making a ton of money being an actor. And I think that that's to make a decision like that. I think for a lot of parents, it would be easy to make that decision, I think. But if you're in that position, maybe it's a little little bit different, a little bit more difficult. He's, he'd probably worked his whole life to get to this point. And he walked away and he hasn't he hasn't acted in anything in over 20 years. And I think he's just recently resurfaced. And it sounds like he's going to start making some cameos and things like that. But I mean, if he I walked saw him away on a commercial and, with Ryan Reynolds, that's yeah I, yeah. I think that was the first time he's really been in anything yeah. since he since he walked away. So his ability to kind of make a difficult decision and the one that was in the best interest of his kids at a time when, you know, he, he had, he was just kind of reaping all the fruits of his labors over the past year. He just said, well, this isn't as important to me as it is my family. And this might not be the popular decision, but this is the right decision. And he made it. And that, that really stuck with me for some reason. So I always really respected him for doing that. And I, and I, I hope that he can come back and he can enjoy acting and he can, you know, sort of, pick up where he left off to one degree or another, but I'm sure he will never have, well, sorry, I, I shouldn't speak for him. I imagine it would be much easier to regret a decision where you stayed, um, acting full time and you had a bad relationship with your kids. than looking back 
on your acting career maybe going away, but you have a strong relationship with your children. Yeah. So tough decision. I, I can't imagine losing your wife um, when she's that young and you have two little kids at home. It just kind of broke my heart reading that. The story is is one that's interesting and, well, interesting is maybe a little macabre, but, you know, it's it's a, it's a tough story to read and I really, really respect how he handled it. And I think he'd be an interesting guy to have a conversation around particularly with, with, with values. And so like, you know, so maybe this is the, the trend that, that you're identifying for me here yeah. is there's this values piece there, this sort of intrinsic. You like, couldn't let me have bearing. that one. I was actually going to say the values thing. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, so, maybe, so now I'm sort of realizing maybe what that trend was and these people that I picked, I have no idea what the trend is in yours. So I hope you're. Well, I think, I think, I think the other thing that I'm noticing since you've already spoken to this is there's also maybe not with Rick Moranis, so much, although he's kind of stepped away from the limelight, but there's a simplicity in a lot of these individuals, right? Like if you think about Watterson, he did his thing, but he kind of wants to, um, he kind of wants to shy away and not take the limelight, just wants to do his craft. It's very sort of simple about his approach. Uh, Pete Best, something almost similar, like sort of, again, dedicated to his craft, but doesn't, you know, if he, he, he kind of forgave that he didn't have to be in the limelight, um, and then, and then, um, uh, Bo Miles, I was going to say red again, Bo Miles <laughs> as well, uh, finding some, finding some life lessons in these simplest things. And I guess the other thing, so values, I see simplicity and I also see, I kind of mentioned this already, it's kind of dedication to craft. Okay. And so uh, I'll probably put these things together from what I know about you already, but I sure. definitely see how these people sort of fit and it makes sense to me. So interesting. Okay. Yeah. Uh, yeah. What's your fourth here? I'm gonna do so. I'm gonna do four and five uh, okay. together, and then we can do your fifth. So four, kind of. I mean, I I have Barack Obama in there, and <laughs> and I feel like the like most people, maybe not most, but there's a lot of people who would have maybe his on his list. Uh, but for me, Barack Obama, I, I just you know I certainly appreciated the approach he took in his presidency, the way he leads himself, the way. You know, he didn't have any scandals in his presidency, all that stuff. That's fine. But the thing for me that uh, that Barack Obama, I guess, kind of did is, so I say eight years of kinesiology. I thought it was going to go down a route where I was going to train professional athletes. I finished my master's, or I was going through my master's, and this was around the same time that Obama's 08 campaign came along. And I was, man, like so many other people, was just enthralled and just watching sort of the, the day-to-day of his campaign, I'm actually reading uh, a Promised Land, his book right now, and he and he really walks the details of, of that 08 campaign. And it was just really inspired, and it really got me to think. Like I got into kinesiology because I thought I wanted to help like one person at a time from a medical perspective. And he really he really changed something in me. He really he really changed me of wanting to sort of help communities to help more than one person. And so just the fact that somebody was able to shift me away from eight years of, of work in kinesiology to something in, uh, you know, going into, you know, public service, I feel like I sort of just owe him a thank you to some extent. I mean, I think he's inspired a lot of people, but he just, he, he is a thoughtful person. He approaches things in, again, a cerebral way. And he sort of 
I guess in some ways commands like, you know, there's that saying the better angels out of yourself. And I feel like he, he consistently did that as president. And he was very sort of straight for the most part, from my understanding with the American people. And I think with people in general, and he's kind of a globalist. Like he, he thinks, you know, as much as he's an American president, I think he, just the fact that his background was, he traveled to many different parts of the world. He has, he has this sort of uh, empathy that he walks around with. Like he said in his Nobel Prize uh, winning speech, like his first line was expand your moral imagination. And I think that that just carries, that just it says who he is. And so, yeah, there, for me, he would be there. I feel like I know a lot about him just because I've read a lot about him. I followed him. So yeah. it wouldn't be that. I think I would just have him because he's just, He's just him. He's just this person who commands a presence and is inspiring and and is is studious and and is curious and yeah. So I definitely yeah, no, I, 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 he would be an interesting person to sort of bend the ear of or at least have a conversation with. Certainly, I mean, I wonder if his presidency looks so good because of who came after him and sort mm-hmm. of how how that's all turned out. If you want to talk about contrast, sure. I think all presidents do things that we don't know about that are probably mm-hmm. a little Yeah, of course. Yeah. Not great, but and and I'm not well versed enough in in American politics to sort of speak to that, but from somebody who's a step removed, I always sort of admired him and always enjoyed his success as a president, you know, or uh, my perceived idea of of what success for a president is and 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 how he achieved that and I it's an interesting example and i laughed because my wife was like you know who would be a good person to have on this list is barack obama <laughs> and i was like yeah it is and i said i bet you your patch will cover it <laughs> and i was That's right. not, i mean that obama's not a surprise to anybody who kind of knows me so uh, yeah. when when my wife was she was guessing my five um she's like, well, like obama of course she's like your man crush or whatever i was like <laughs> well you know what i actually wasn't thinking of putting him in this time because i feel like i'm learning so much about him like what am i going to learn about but i was like no this is a guy who really shifted something in me like mm-hmm. he he's got to be there so um, and then the fifth yeah i know that well that's uh, <laughs> that's him man that, i'm just bugging i'm just yeah bugging. uh and the fifth person i wanted somebody to kind of offer i got a lot of serious people on my at my dinner table i needed somebody to kind of bring some comedic relief yeah. and so i have uh steve colbert Oh, yeah. I actually really love Stephen Colbert. Not the, not the, I mean, I love the Colbert show, but I would have like the non satirical version of Stephen Colbert, even though he is still kind of satirical on the late show. Yeah. Uh, but he, I feel like he offers this kind of comedic relief. He kind of understands history pretty well. And so I feel like if there's any sort of tense moments or like, these kind of awkward moments, which I don't think I would have with any of these people at the same dinner table. But if there was, I feel like he'd be able to kind of break that and steer it in a way that that is just going to make the table laugh or just kind of insert some timely humor. And, and yeah, he's just, he, I I would say like Stephen Colbert and I even had kind of John Stewart, but I would probably have Stephen Colbert as sort of my fifth. Yeah. Okay. Um, Yeah. yeah, My wife is a huge Stephen Colbert fan, although she's more of a fan of, of the character and okay. uh on the colbert rapport and yeah we, i love that show yeah. yeah and it's the thing is i probably learned more from that show it's like now um i can't remember what the name of the show is but with john oliver last yeah uh last week tonight or whatever it's called yeah yeah um, yeah, yeah, yeah 
Wonderful show. And it's funny, but you also learn. So I learned so much about politics from the Colbert Report. And yeah, like mm-hmm. a lot of it's tongue in cheek, but a lot of it isn't. And a lot of it is, you know, a pretty strong take on an issue with some humor kind of mixed in. And mm-hmm. I, I, I really, really appreciate that space. Just like John Stewart. I think that uh, John Stewart and um, No More Colbert Report has hurt some folks. I think that um, that uh, John Oliver is doing a pretty good job, though, in there in their space so i i love that space for sure yeah Yeah. who's your fifth fifth one's a guy named uh barry hilston lopez uh he's a essayist nonfiction fiction writer uh or he was so i learned as i was doing uh, some research on this that he actually passed away on christmas day which is a huge bummer oh man so he uh was a writer for over 50 years i really admired his sort of nonfiction um stuff so he won his most popular book is one called Arctic Dreams, I think, and it's just he had spent some time, I think, on a on a research project in the Arctic, and he generally had some thoughts on it. And the reason why I I, I love his writing is because he's very he's very very good at outlining a, a a space or an issue or describing a setting. So like the Arctic, for example, being very very poetic, but then also kind of breaking your heart with a line after that 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 really kind of binds together these really, really complex issues into like a single sentence. And he's just, uh, he's produced some of the most beautiful writing I've ever read, particularly when he writes from his environmental standpoint or his nature Mm -hmm. kind of observation standpoint. And the reason why I want to talk to him is because he, he has this insane ability to be focused and still for a long, long time and really, really absorb a setting so, you know, for example, he has a short story in, in, in a book called River Notes where he sat on a riverbank for an entire day motionless just to see kind of what would come out of the woods and like what would kind of be around him. And I, I think some herons came down and he, then he writes, you know, 30 pages on these herons, which doesn't sound that interesting. That's like Buddha-like, man. It's, it's insane. Or he, yeah. he's really, really uh, – so he lived in, in Oregon and he would drive out to the coast and he would camp illegally in this cut block. But he would do it intentionally when storms were coming in because he really wanted to feel the coast. He really wanted to feel nature and, and sort of all that it had to offer. And then he would write about it. And his writing was beautiful. And he could capture these experiences. And, you know, I I couldn't describe a tree any better than saying it's a tree or, you know, how the wind makes a tree move with rain. And he, he, he could just um, really, really hold your attention on something that, most people would think is mundane and he could just illuminate it in a way that was so interesting and so beautiful. And I think he could do that because he was so focused on it. He had this ability, like Mm. I said, to just really, really hone in on something for a long time. And I really, really admired that. There's some kind of limit similarities between him and Bill Miles almost to some extent. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. Sort of see beauty or take meaning out of things where where most people wouldn't. Um, So, and I, I really, really, I, so my, father's a big Barry Lopez fan and that's kind of how I got turned on to him and mm-hmm. um, really 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 enjoy his writing so I was really sad to hear that he passed away but yeah that's another guy mm-hmm. that I'd, I'd love to sit down and have a conversation with yeah I, I, so yeah I, I see so across all your five I believe they're all I think they're all artists to some extent yeah so, so there's some... yeah so yeah so Watterson yeah best drummer Miles is a filmmaker Morales is an actor and Lopez is a writer. Yep. And so would you say for yourself that uh, outside of your, your day work, you generally, 
you feel like you're generally an artist? I would never call myself an artist, but I appreciate art that others produce, if that makes sense. I yeah. I, I really enjoy music. I, I really enjoy reading. I've gotten into poetry lately and uh, I really, really appreciate that very much. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I read a quote and this isn't, I'm going to mess it up and I can't remember who it's from, but, but basically the artist's job is to take something that seems mundane and find beauty in it and then describe that beauty. And I think all these guys mm. do that. And I really, really appreciate it. So art is something that, that that's very important to me, although I probably wouldn't call myself an artist. Well, see, so when I think about you and what I've gotten to know about you, that last piece about seeing something and then, and then kind of putting, adding almost additional value to it. I know for myself, like in conversations I've had with you where I may have not seen something maybe that I've done that was very valuable. There are many times you kind of made me realize, Hey, Pash, that's actually something big, you know, or you've seen something simple as something bigger than it actually is. I think it's an absolute quality of yours mm-hmm. in terms of the way you encourage people. And so I suspect that that's something you also have, you kind of embody within your own life. Is that sort of what you're finding maybe is that these, these small things that you're sort of seeing additional value to, and they don't have to be the biggest things, but you certainly put a lot of appreciation and gratitude towards them. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, um, it's a good question. I know that I have been trying to find that sort of thing in everyday life more and more. I, I think that, I think that if you can do that and if you can find, I mean, beauty sounds dramatic, but if you can find things that are appealing in every moment of the, of the day or things that maybe you wouldn't traditionally think are beautiful, mm-hmm. how can that not improve your life? And how can that not make mm-hmm. you feel maybe a little bit more fulfilled? Because we can't always be at the top of some mountain, you know, with this beautiful landscape, or we can't always be somewhere that's beautiful, but you can probably always find some observation that's at least interesting or appealing. I think that's what a lot of these people do maybe is, is kind of help you realize that. So mm-hmm. I think that it's a, it's a thought that I've been entertaining more and more certainly. Right. Yeah. So, so that's an interesting observation on your part for sure. Yeah. Um, so yours let's do, so you have, um, so you had Gandhi, you had the yeah. one physicist. Marie Curie. Yeah. Um, you had, uh, you had a bit of a double hit. You had, um, Kobe and George St. Pierre. Yeah. And then you had Obama and Colbert. Colbert. Yeah. Uh, So, all right. Nonviolence, physics. (laughs) So the first two died for, and and you said this. So the first two died, died for something that they believed in, although they probably didn't know that they were going to die from results of it, but they were passionate about something and it led to their end. Um, And they probably wouldn't have been bummed. Well, who knows? But they, you, you you probably can't say that they died for what they believed in, but that's probably not far off of, of like where their value mm-hmm. set was. Mm-hmm. Kobe and GSP are elite athletes who are both very, very mentally um, acute, I suppose. They're very, they have a strong mental acumen when it comes to sort of their craft and, and the approach that they have. Um, Obama is a, you know, sounds like a strong role model and you... There's a lot of, I guess, so there's a lot of integrity. At, well, I don't know if that's true for everybody. So Obama was a strong role model, good president. And then Colbert is just a funny dude who's who's also quite smart. I mean, all these people are smart people. 
all these people are mentally mentally strong all these people seem to be extremely passionate about what they're doing or what they did almost to a point that it was all encompassing mm. gandhi certainly the physicist yep gsp and kobe certainly obama yep probably and colbert maybe he's a bit of an outlier there but you even said you added him more f more because he brought sort of comedic relief to an otherwise potentially awkward dinner party so i yeah i yeah i'm, I'm having a bit of a hard time i mean if i know you i know that you're uh, you also are, you bring a strong mental aspect just about everything that you do and you like to analyze and you like to think and you like to, you like to consider, um, things to a pretty, pretty strong degree, I would think. And maybe all these people also do that. You're also pretty passionate about the things that, that are important to you. And so these people, I would say that too, again, Colbert, I mean, Colbert is probably passionate and all mm -hmm. that stuff, but I don't put him in the same category as the other four. Um, yeah, I, I think mean, the, so, they're sort so, of all uh, in on their passions and you're sort of all in on your passions. Well, so this is, this is the thing that, um, is very intriguing to me about some of these people. So if you think about Gandhi and Marie Curie, especially, even, you know, there's a couple of people that didn't make it onto my list, but it, you know, I guess a more popular reference these days is someone like Elon Musk, right? Like these mm -hmm. people who are just, you know, Elon Musk, for instance, love him or hate him, but like he was down to his last dollar with SpaceX and he had just got a billion dollars from creating PayPal. And with that last dollar, you know, he was just like, no, I got to give it one more go. And then, you know, his rocket made it or whatever. And, and then the rest of it took off. Yeah. And then even when, with some of his Tesla models, he said he was, there was a chance that Tesla wasn't even going to make it in 2017. But these people are just so stubbornly committed to things that they're willing to kind of just lose things in their life. Right. And so it's like almost in contrast to like somebody like Pete Best, right, who saw like his success for metric or her metrics for success, sorry, were like family and like all that stuff where, I mean, I can't say about Marie Curie, but like Mahatma Gandhi, my understanding is that he was not necessarily the greatest father to his own kid. Right. And, you know, and, you know, sacrifices, these some of these people understand the sacrifices have to be made I guess that's the thing that I struggle with internally because I could, we talked about presence in our first episode, like in being there for my kid, right? Like mm -hmm. as passionate as I am, how do I, how do I balance those two? Like, it's almost like I'd want to find some sort of, I'm sure everybody does, but like, I really, really think about how do I balance and try to also commit to my passions and, and pursue some sort of level of, you know, higher level of excellence, right? Yeah. And, and what I do. And so, so these people just intrigue me. I'm like, my questions would be like, how did you, how, like, how could you give those things up? Like, those would be some, uh, one of my questions for sure. And then uh, Colbert, even though like the comedic relief is there, there's something true I feel like about me is that I really think about how, how a group fits and how the facilitation happens. Like that's really important to me. Okay. And so that's why for me, I would never, like when I compose these five, it didn't even dawn on me to have dinner with these people on an individual level. Uh, yeah, it okay. always for me was like, what are those five people together? Okay. And so when I came up with the four, I'm like, I need somebody to tie this thing together. I mean, I'm going to be there, but I'm in no capacity to facilitate a conversation between these these five mega people. Yeah. So I need somebody to kind of do that. And I think Stephen Colbert would do an excellent job. So 
So yeah, those would probably be the things for me. And the cerebral piece for sure. I just, I think the experience that I was looking for, I was actually going to ask you this as well, but the experience that I'm looking for is not only just for a lot of my curiosities to be satisfied and, and, and this intrigue as well, but to kind of come away from being like, oh my God, my head is about to explode. Like just wow. And just be able to like, not go to sleep for five, six hours because I'm just thinking about this conversation and just walk away with this huge buzz. I think that's sort of the experience that I'm looking for. So if you if you were to have your five together or these guys individually of yours, like what would you say is the experience that you would hope to get after a dinner conversation? Um well it would be individual, I I think. I don't think you could get what you'd what you'd want. I mean, so there's a risk of maybe the conversation not going well and just you two staring at each other with no third or fourth person to sort of add in. But I, I think if you're going to mute like one-on-one to me, especially with Watterson, I don't feel like if you had a one-on-one with Watterson, he'd huh? just be quiet. Look at you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know. The thing is, he's probably like a super fun guy. I mean, how can you write these comics for this long and have the brain that comes up with the humor in these comics and not be like an interesting guy? He's just an interesting guy who's kind of stuck to. There's his only guns. one picture of him on the internet. Awesome! That's so awesome. <laughs> I, my uh, internet presence is is pretty low. I don't know if there is a picture of me on the internet. There probably is, but um, I admired that about this guy so. Well, much. you're the stick guy in our two nobodies logo. That's you, man. Yeah, that's, that's and that's <laughs> that's actually what I look like. That's. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I think one on one would be better. You, you get more out of the conversation. I think. By having one-on-one conversations with these yeah. people personally. Um, and it'd be interesting. I'd be nervous. I mean, I'm not, I generally, like I am f- in fans of people that I would never want to sit down and have a conversation with. Like there's bands that I really like that I would like, why would I want to, or like hockey players. Mm. Like, like why would I want to sit down and talk to those guys? Like, you know, um, we have nothing in common. So there's, there'd have to be something else that these people are bringing to the con, you know, mm. uh, to the table. And I think all of these people do. So yeah, it, it'd be interesting, certainly. Um, and, and to get out of it, I think you'd, it'd be nice if you could just get some, a different perspective, you know, for, for, for how to view the world a little bit. Right. I mean, these people are all pretty successful as I kind of scroll through the list. Yeah, they're all successful people that made their money doing something that they love. Mm-hmm. And th- I mean, what like that is awesome. So if if you mm-hmm. could be creative and get paid for it and get paid well for it, that would be awesome. So, imagine if you could find that out like at such an early age, like oh. that's just that's just a gift. I, I think I think I've heard, you know, all these people on my list kind of talk about it, but I remember Kobe saying that very clearly is like if you could figure out that sort of passion or that love or that thing that is, is really you at an early age, just like run with that. Like yeah. that's such a gift. So. Yeah, that's right. So I, if you could get some kind of inkling as to how to incorporate that in your life, just a little bit better. Yeah, that would be, that would be awesome. So I don't know. I'd probably go into it with like no expectations and just <laughs> hopefully it went okay. And yeah, I don't know, just yeah, well, it's like what kind of insights would you be hoping to get out of your list? See, I think individually for sure it would be awesome. I think I would just put these five people just watching being, I mean, I'd be there eating, but I'd be a fly on the wall. I don't think I'd be saying much. I think I'd just be watching like 
Obama talked to Gandhi. Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Because I know that like, Gandhi is one of his one of his idols, yeah. right? And watch so it would just, just to kind of like, watch that. Fart and dick jokes or something, and you'd be like, "What is yeah. happening? <laughs> this is not what I thought at all." Yeah, you just like have a yeah. push-up competition. Obama yeah. wins. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Anyways. Yeah. So I, I think just kind of watching those dynamics would be. Uh, uh, would be would be fascinating. So that's that's sort of how I how I how I process that. But of course, if I could if imagine having individual conversations with these people, I would I'd for sure take that. It just my mind just didn't work that way when I when I kind of put this list together. Yeah. So very very quickly, Kyle. Who are there any people who didn't make the cut? You can just kind of list them and then we can. Yes, yes, sure. I mean, I had a hard time making this list as it was, but there's a couple of folks I thought of putting on here. One is Nick Drake. He's a he's a singer songwriter from the '70s that um, was a happy young guy and started playing music and didn't get immediate success. And he he actually died. Um, I don't know if they confirmed it was suicide, but he took some pills and he died at a, at, mm. at a young age after recording three albums at the time. Left him, you know, not famous really at all, and now he's. He's incredibly famous for a lot of reasons. So he'd be an interesting guy mm-hmm. to talk to. Um, and the other one was um, the author of um, Moby Dick, Herman Melville. And yeah. he yeah. he's another guy that I wrote this book, died penniless. And now everybody knows who he is. And he, he wrote, you know, one of mm-hmm. the, you know, I would say that Moby Dick's probably one of the greatest achievements in literature, you know, f- as far as I can tell. I don't really know what I'm talking about. Yeah. But, um to just uh interesting you know th- this guy writes this novel and tries and tries and tries and then he dies and um it, it only gains success after the fact so both those guys i think it'd be interesting to kind of have a chat with as well what about you guys very that- very creative very creative people throughout your list man yeah yeah i guess so it seems like actually there's a third guy who wrote a book called uh, the confederacy of dunces he uh writes this book uh, i can't remember his name anyways writes this book um, he gets rejected by publishers, kills himself. His mom finds it and submits it after his death. And he goes, he won some major award after and now, like it's his famous book, sort of same thing, right? These people that were on the mm. cusp of greatness. And anyways, interesting, interesting conversations to have with those people, I think. Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, you, my, uh, my, my, I guess the people didn't make the cut couple. I already mentioned Elon Musk, but, uh, Tamath Paliapathia. He's actually this uh, investor. He, he actually went to my alma mater at uh, University of Waterloo, but he uh, lives in California. He, if you're if you're an investor right now, you you would know that name. Like he, he started this company called Social Capital, but he worked at Facebook in the early days. Um, super super smart guy. But Social Capital is really about funding businesses that provide a social benefit mm-hmm. and. He kind of has this sort of, uh, he's just Warren Buffett is sort of his investment idol. But I just, I just, I, I think there's definitely a role for, for businesses to play in, in moving our world to more, you know, a, a better place. And, and I think he, he is that kind of venture capitalist who really uh, believes that using that his capital anyways to, towards some, towards things that improve our society is important and so he he is he has done that and so i i follow he's something i'm following a lot these days i watch a lot of his videos so that's that's somebody recent and then i mentioned Brene brown early in one of her episodes i listened to her podcast almost religiously 
uh, sometimes to even pump me up in the morning. She just, she has these amazing leaders. She has two of them, Dare to Lead is one podcast and, and Unlocking Us is the other one. And Dare to Lead, I've been really, I've been listening to more recently, but she has a, as a PhD and a researcher and I don't know if she's a professor, but definitely an academic, just brings a ton of, uh, validity to to her words and, and to her approach and her interviewing so just appreciate everything that i've learned from her and i think i think having a conversation with her would be it would be fascinating and elon musk i think he's probably one of the most important you know he's got a you gotta love him or hate him there's a lot of people who maybe are not a fan of elon musk but i think he's one of the most important people in our world right now he's the I, richest man in the chamath, world right now well so chamath actually said He's like, you know what? I do want the world's richest man to be somebody who's taking on climate change. Yeah, yeah. You know, I think that's pretty cool. Yeah. So, so yes, he is the world's richest man now. Funny thing um, about Musk. So and, he's married to a Canadian uh, musician named Grimes. Yeah. And Grimes. Yeah. Grimes just won like a $90,000 grant f- from the government of Canada. <laughs> <laughs> like $90,000 to her. Like, what does that mean? Yeah. Like that it's, it's yeah. nothing like Musk makes that in a minute. Probably it's so it's, it's, yeah. and it's supposed to be for like, you know, artists, they're like emerging or like, art. you know, it's, it, it was probably supposed to go to some dirt poor artist who's like living in it. And it just goes yeah. to the wife of the richest man in the world. Anyway, yeah. It's kind of funny. Yeah. Hey, so I, I kind of lied about this episode. I feel like, I think I said that, hey, it's probably going to take like 30 minutes. We'll go through our list. But I've had a really great time like learning about all, I think, yeah, I think all five actually didn't know who those people were that you mentioned. And I, um, they make sense to me as far as what I've gotten to know about you. I definitely feel like it's it sort of hammered a few things that I've already kind of known about sure. you. And just learning about these quality people has been, has certainly added value to my my evening so so thank you for that i realize that we've gone a long way so i don't know if anyone's going to stick with well, us wonder, through, through this won- whole podcast but for any of our dedicated listeners thank you for sticking around this <laughs> well, I, long. I, I i wonder if we should maybe break this up into episode one episode two and like just at the 45 minute mark or, or maybe not just post the whole thing online and hey if you you know it's almost like an endurance. hey joe rogan does three hours we can do an hour yeah 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 know. that's right that's right yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah. No, dude. Yeah. I uh, this was a fun conversation for sure, and I and I appreciate you posing the question and taking the time to listen to my responses and uh, your thoughtful responses as well. So certainly appreciate the conversation, and it was it was fun. Thanks, Kyle. Appreciate yeah, you. Buddy. Appreciate you too. Chat soon. Take care.